Like many pastors, I find myself quoting C.S. Lewis quite often. And one of my favorite quotes is from his book, Mere Christianity. In fact, I love this quote so much that I have it framed in my office. Here it is. If I find myself, I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I hope when we are done with this series called A Very Bright Future, through the book of Revelation, we will be convinced that we were ultimately made for another world, the new heavens and the new earth. The wise old king, King Solomon, put it this way in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Revelation is the promise, if you know Christ, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And in every human heart, there is this sense of otherness, that there is someone other than us who's bigger and better than us, and that there is another land beyond this one that's better than ours. You see this played out in the books written and movies made. They are called fantasy But there really is uh, an epic battle between good and evil and a happily ever after that's going to actually take place. And yet Solomon concluded in verse 11 by saying that it is a challenge for humans to grasp what the happily ever after really looks like. And that's where Revelation comes in. More than any other book in the Bible, it peels back God's future plans and we get to see a peak of it. However, in the finiteness of our minds, we still can't quite grasp it all. But it's my goal that when we're done with Revelation, the end of times will at least make a little more sense to us, and we will have a deeper longing to be with our Savior. The most important thing, though, in this series is that I want us to develop a deeper understanding of who Jesus is as we read Revelation. Because what makes heaven heaven isn't the streets of gold or the mansions waiting for us. That stuff's pretty cool. But what makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. It's important as we get started that we understand something very important. Revelation is not a book of confusion and concern. It is a book of comfort if you know Christ. Maybe this will help. Think of Revelation as a picture book, not a puzzle book. We want to understand it as well as we can, but don't get frustrated if you don't understand every last detail. Your walk with Christ won't suffer if you don't know for sure who Babylon is, uh, referring to in uh, Revelation 18, I think it is, or who the Antichrist is, or why the angels are depicted with a bunch of eyes all over them in Revelation 4. Don't treat it like a puzzle book where you must know every last detail. See it as a picture book. It's painting a picture for us in broad strokes so that we can at least have an idea idea of what glory will be like. It's okay to still have a sense of mystery about the book and about our eternal glory. 
You know, the older I get, the more I actually welcome the mysteries of God. All right, why don't we go ahead and dive in. So turn to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to cover the first eight verses this week. Now, much of this book will be verse by verse, but there will be times when we take more of a, a survey approach, especially as we look at the, the large portion of the book, which focuses on what I believe to be the tribulation. As I said, there are challenging passages in here, but I think that the theme of the book is crystal clear. Jesus will return and defeat all evil and establish his eternal kingdom. You know, everybody loves the redemption story. That's why we like movies like Rocky and Rudy. And everybody loves a hero. You see, Revelation is the ultimate redemption story that the human heart yearns for. And Jesus is the ultimate hero that every human heart was wired to worship, whether they realize it or not. You know, a lot of people don't understand this, but I really believe this. This may be the most uplifting book in the Bible. When the picture becomes clearer of what God is going to do. Okay, let's take a look. Verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So there's three things that, um, just from the opening verses that we need to know about Revelation. The first thing is that this book is from Jesus and is about Jesus. Different books are known for different things. So if I were to mention the book Psalms, I think most of you would think of the word praise. Philippians, the word joy. Proverbs, the word wisdom. Leviticus, the word boring. Oh, no, no, no. It's not boring. The word rules. And Revelation, the word future. Revelation does talk about the future, but don't miss the word of in verse 1. It is a revelation of Jesus. You see, the place isn't the point. The person is the point of this book. John Piper gives a convicting challenge for us. He said this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters... Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? I don't know about you, but some of those things sound really nice. But if they sound so nice, 
that I'm willing to take that, but Jesus isn't there, then I have really missed the point of what heaven is. It's not about the place. It's about the person. Jesus makes heaven, heaven. Another thing we need to know is this. The events can happen at any moment. Notice what it says in verse 1b. The things that must soon take place. Now, most of us, when we think of soon, we think of something happening in a short amount of time. Right? Real quick. But the Greek word that is used here actually can carry the idea of impending, not immediate. So really the idea is suddenly, without delay. It could happen at any moment. In fact, that's why they wrote like this. They thought it was happening in their day, 2,000 years ago. But it can happen at any moment when Christ returns and establishes the kingdom. I remember when I was a kid, one time I came home from school, and for whatever reason, nobody was home. I looked everywhere in the house, and all of a sudden, I was struck with terror. And I thought to myself, I missed the rapture! <laughs> Jesus came back and I wasn't really a Christian. Anybody ever have a moment like that? Well, he hasn't come back yet. But guess what? It could happen today before I even finish this talk. Are we ready to meet him face to face? Another thing we need to understand about Revelation as we begin this journey together is that the person who reads, hears, and applies this book will be blessed. I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of being blessed. I want God's blessing on my life, my ministry, my family. I wouldn't mind His blessing on our cars that seem to be breaking down a lot lately. Well, we have a promise from Jesus Himself. If we go through this book and read it and apply it to our lives, He will bless us. But there's a key thing here. It's something that drives me as a pastor and as the leader of Uncaged Bible Ministry. I've given my life to this. I want people desperately to understand something so very, very important. We've been given the Bible for transformation, not information. If we leave our journey just learning more about end times, then it's been another failure. I want to, to see us transformed as we di dive through the book. So let's go ahead and spend the rest of our time looking at verses 4 through 8. There are four questions the opening verses of Revelation answer for us. And here's the first question. Who wrote the book and why was it written? This section emphasizes the Trinity. In this verse, we have the Father who is and who was and who is to come. In other words, He is eternal. And you have the Holy Spirit. Most likely here, it's an odd description. It refers to Him as seven spirits, which probably is meant to mean the sevenfold spirit. Seven is a number of completion. You, you see it emphasized in this book and, and probably it emphasizes the various roles that he has in our lives. We'll get a description of Jesus then in the next verse. But to answer our question, the author is John. 
He was one of the 12 disciples. He was part of the inner circle of three who had the most intimate relationship with Jesus. And Jesus must have trusted him because on the cross, he entrusted the care of his earthly mother to him. John wrote five of the New Testament books. John, and then first, and second, and third John, and then Revelation. Late in life, he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos for his commitment to Christ. Reliable historical sources say that he lived in a cave, cut off from his loved ones, and treated with cruelty by the Romans. It was here that John received the vision from the Lord, which is the book of Revelation. Some think he was in his 80s, 90s. Um, he was near 100 years old when he received this vision. And while the vision John received is for all believers, it was specifically to be delivered to seven churches in Asia Minor who, like John, were being persecuted. Now, we'll look more at these churches in a couple of weeks. But I want to remind us, in light of understanding the context in which this book was written, that the vision was to bring hope, comfort, to John and to the churches who are experiencing pain and persecution. We don't study Revelation just because it's fascinating. We do so because it breathes into us hope when life is hard, when life is not fair. It reminds us that God will right every wrong done in the sin-saturated world. Well, verse 5a answers another question for us. Who is Jesus. And this is really the most important thing as we study through this, is really discovering who Jesus really is. These three descriptions that are given of Jesus are really the heart of the, the gospel. Look at the first one in verse 5a. It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The Greek word for witness is where we get our English word martyr. A martyr dies for a cause. Jesus was faithful to accomplish the Father's cause. Death on a cross to save mankind. Now, keep reading. And it says that he was also the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. Now, what, what does that mean? What that means is that after Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection, uh, I don't know when you're watching this, but uh, uh, we are only days away from Easter, right? And we celebrate the resurrection. That once he rose from the dead, all after him who placed their faith in him would follow in his path. He was the firstborn of the dead who now rise to eternity. Aren't you thankful for the resurrection? It gives meaning to our suffering. It gives hope for those of us who have lost someone we love. It frees us to face death without fear. Because the story doesn't end there. In many ways, it only begins. I love this quote by Tony Bazin. The cradle and the cross are of little value without the resurrection. But the cradle plus the cross plus the resurrection equals salvation. Can't emphasize enough how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, that he is the firstborn of the dead. 
Look at the third thing it says about Jesus in 5a. It says that he is the ruler of kings on earth. So he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. And he is the ruler of kings on earth. Think of all the evil rulers over the years. People like Hitler, for instance. Think of the evil ones today. And think of the pain and destruction they have caused. Well, here's the reality. One day, they will be punished, and they will bow a knee to Jesus, and we will finally have a leader who will perfectly love us and lead us. This is who Jesus is. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. And he is the ruler of kings on earth. Well, in 5b to verse 6, it then says what Jesus has done. What has Jesus done? Look at 5b and 6. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom... Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, think about that for a moment. Jesus didn't just cover our sins. He loved us and so he died to free us from sins, but he didn't stop there. We are also adopted into the royal family as sons and daughters and given the role of priests. Like priests, we represent God to the people. We serve while we're here. Like priests, we are to offer sacrifices of praise. We worship while we're here. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves if we are in Christ. So let us stop settling for the scrapes of the world and what they have to offer. Let us stop building castles out of sand. Man, if nothing else, I hope you leave here being reminded that we are part of a greater kingdom. We don't need to build earthly kingdoms. We don't need to find our identity in what we build. We are part of something bigger than ourselves. And that's worth giving our lives to. These verses give to us the heart of the gospel. It gives us really the theme of the Bible in just these couple of verses. It makes what we will study in Revelation a, a reason for rejoicing, not a reason for fear. You see, this is maybe a visual that might help you understand. These verses can be summarized with three arrows. The first arrow is an arrow going down. The second arrow is an arrow going up. And the third arrow is an arrow going down. This is a visual of the heart of the gospel. You see that first arrow going down, that represents Jesus coming to earth, leaving the glories of heaven to come to earth to die for us. That arrow going up is the resurrection. Jesus defeating death and going back to the Father, the right hand of the Father. And that third arrow represents his return. This is the gospel. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus will return someday. And until he returns, we are to live in the in-between, 
in between the resurrection, his resurrection, and his return. We live as priests. We do our part for the kingdom of God. We don't just sit and wait for him to return. We wait well. We wait actively. We serve in our priestly role, serving others and lifting up the name of Jesus until the day he returns. So, the other question is this. What happens when Jesus comes back? Well, that's found in verses 7 and 8. Take a look. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I want to tell you, this book is not only a book about who Jesus is. This book is not only a book about what's to come. This is a book that should inspire worship in us. For us, this return of Christ is a time of rejoicing for those who don't know Christ. It is a time of wailing. And that should fuel us to share Christ with the people in our lives who don't yet know Him. His return should keep each of us ready. There was a young man who was to return home and be married. And... Um, came sooner than was expected. He, he did not notify his bride-to-be that he was coming back sooner than later. He desired to, to please her with a surprise. And so, you see, he loved her de devotely and had worked hard and had saved his earnings in order to purchase a home for her. It was about midnight when he arrived with a happy heart. He had to go see her. However, when he came near, he saw the house was all lit up. It seemed strange since it was midnight, and as he came near, he heard music. Still near, he saw dancing. Finally, looking through the window, he saw his bride-to-be in the embrace of another man. His heart sank within him, and he went away never to return. If Jesus came back today, what would he find his bride, the body of Christ, doing? Are we dancing with the world instead of being about the Father's business until he returns? I mean, you see the description. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's was, it is, and excuse me, he, he is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Why wouldn't we pour out our lives in following him and serving him in our priestly role until he returns. There's so much theology in this book. And man, even in just the first eight verses, there's so much theology. We are in for a treat as we journey through this book together. And what I'd like to do is I would like to end with some application. Again, we're not just to hear it or just to read it. 
We are to apply it. So what is some application for us? And I want to focus on the descriptions. For our application, what the descriptions of who Jesus is, who God is, what application that can be for our lives. And here's the first one. Because Jesus is the faithful witness, we can have the assurance that our sins have been and will be forgiven. When Jesus died on a cross, he died for all sins, for all of mankind, past, present, and future. I want to tell you, the evil one wants us to doubt our salvation. He wants us to, to doubt if, if certain sins can truly be forgiven. So we go year after year living in the guilt that Jesus has already forgiven. He's already died for. And so as we're reminded that Jesus is a faithful witness, he went to the cross, he nailed the sin to the cross, then we can have the assurance that when we stumble and fall, and we will this side of heaven, when we do, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive forgiveness and mercy and grace. Because our Savior was a faithful martyr, a faithful witness. He covered it. And we can have assurance that our sins will be forgiven. Also, because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, we can have the confidence to fight from victory, not for victory. But what do I mean by that? I mean that once Jesus rose from the dead, see, his death paid the price for sin. So we can have assurance that our sin can be forgiven. But when he rose from the dead, he defeated not just death, he defeated Satan. He defeated the power of Satan. He defeated the power of sin in our life. So that means that we have, if Christ dwells in us, we have resurrection power dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about Jesus being the firstborn of the dead, we can have this confidence that we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. We already have victory type of power in our lives. Don't let Satan deceive you. You have everything you need for victory. Now, there's things that God asked us to do that's part of that experiencing victory. Reading scripture and praying to him and having accountability and, and you know, being wise and staying away from temptation. But this is not just today when we, and, and really in this whole series, when we look at who Jesus is, it's not just, it's not for a classroom, it's for, it's for Monday, it's for life. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can have the confidence that you're fighting from victory, not for victory. And I'm going to give you another one. <laughs> because Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth, we can be fearless no matter who sits on earthly thrones. I don't know if you like the president, don't like the president. You know, I don't know if you're concerned or not concerned. You know, it doesn't matter who's on the throne. It doesn't matter what's going on in Russia. I don't mean that to be insensitive. I mean, it matters. Lives are, are being destroyed. What I mean by this, it matters, but eternally speaking, it doesn't change our future. And we don't have to be afraid because we know that the real king, the real leader, is going to come someday. And that those of us who have been adopted as sons and daughters, who have inherit, inherited, uh, have received the inheritance that can't be taken away, First Peter talks about that, then we don't have to live in fear. 
No matter who's in power, no matter what's going on around the world, it should break our heart, we should pray for people, but we don't have to live in fear. Doesn't matter who's on the earthly throne, we don't have to live in fear. Because our leader will one day rule over all earthly leaders. Every knee will bow. So we don't have to live in fear. And I'll give you one more, and then we'll wrap it up for our first week. Because God was and is and is to come. In other words, he's eternal. He's always existed. He past, present, future. He's always existed. Because of that, we can have peace no matter what. Whatever life throws our way, it does not take God by surprise. You know what Scripture says in the book of Psalms? It says that God bottles up every one of our tears. God is sovereign. God is even able to take the evil leaders and the sin in this world and, and still accomplish his greater will, his ultimate will. He's sovereign. He's in control. He was and he is and he is to come. And he gave man a free will. And in that free will, man chose rebellion. And so all of us are going to face some pain and suffering along the way. Sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes it's others inflicted. Sometimes it's God-inflicted, that there's things that God, through pain, wants to grow us in. And so the fact that God was and is and is to come is not just a theological truth. It can be a daily reality that leads to peace. Because we may not understand it with our finite minds, but an infinite God who was and is and is to come has a reason for all that's going on in this world. And he can even use the bad we see in the world to accomplish his greater good. So because of that, because our God is sovereign, we can have peace no matter what. We can have peace. We can be fearless. The reality that Jesus died for us, the reality that he rose from the dead, and the reality that he's returning again should allow us to walk in that peace and that fearlessness. Revelation isn't just about the future. Revelation is about transforming our lives now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And thank you for this journey that we're able to go on together. Who knows, Father, maybe he'll come back before we even finish this book. But if not, may we have ears to hear and eyes to see. And may we grow in deeper love and affection for you and your son. May we be sensitive to the spirit of God as he leads us in the reading of this prophecy. And may this truly be a book of hope and comfort as it was intended to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were encouraged by God's word today. You can join us each weekday morning for a five-minute fill-up. And for other teaching, writing, and training resources, don't forget to check out our website at uncagedbibleministry.com. The mission of Uncaged is to help people fall in love with the word of God so they fall more in love with the God of the word.